Wait a minute. Jesus says that the priests desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? How the heck does that work? Welcome to the Cutting the Gordian Knot podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about the very strange and difficult to understand instances where it seems that people have broken God's holy law and yet are held innocent. Now, there are certainly conflicting views about whether or not we can ever break one of God's holy laws. There's a sense in which, no, you never can, but it's actually more complicated than that. It's certainly true that you are never permitted to sin, but there are times when we ought to obey a higher law over a lower law. And we're going to learn a little bit about how that plays out. First thing I want to say to frame this episode is that I really do like the Old Testament laws. I think they are brilliant, and I will personally go to bat to defend any of the laws in the Old Testament, even the ones which on the surface seem wrong or unjust or ridiculous. Every single one of these, which I've looked into deeply, I've come to understand are unbelievably wise, are incredible in bringing people to a closer relationship with Christ. Now, not all are applied to our current covenant, that's true, but the genius, the wisdom that the laws are embody, it, it's next level. And we're going to have to do an entire series on the book of Leviticus at some point. At very least, you can probably expect a couple episodes on Leviticus and the laws therein, um, because these are the ones I'm most familiar with, the Levitical law. Um, I think you're going to actually really like those. So if you see one pop up, don't just avoid it because it says Leviticus. Um, anyways, that's a bit of a digression. I think the law is awesome. This is not slamming on the law in any way. Um, if you are one of those people who have read the Old Testament laws, you could do worse than uh, coming out of a, of a good reading of the law with the understanding that they're not all equal. That would be one of the most obvious things that you could possibly pull from a reading of the law. Not only are they commonly understood to be in order, the 613 laws, an order of importance, but also they're, um, they each offer different punishments, right? So clearly they have different importance if breaking these laws has a different punishment. Some is being stoned to death. Some might be a small fine. So Clearly, there's a hierarchy of laws here, and that's been accepted by the rabbis. That's been accepted by many people. So if you know nothing about the law, you should know at least that they are hierarchical, that some are higher than others, some are aimed at higher goods, and some at lower goods. Thomas Aquinas says that there's a Stoic accretion which came into uh, early Gnostic thought that all sin was equal. And this, I see, is an affront to the revelation of the law. Now, this idea that all sins are equal, not only is that against the Old Testament, it's also against the New. If you read some of John's letters, you'll know that there's a distinction between mortal and venial sins. If you read the Gospels, you know that some servants are beaten with many and some with few stripes. Um, I could go on. Uh, Paul lists some sins which are, are deadly, which break you out of the covenant. Well, he leaves some things, which are certainly sins, that don't necessarily do that. Um, but Protestant theology has actually picked this up again. Not all, but some Protestant denominations say that all sin is, is equal. And I think that's an error that we should definitely reject. I think that I think Aquinas is, as usual, quite right. 
That's a Gnostic idea. It's not a Christian idea. It's ultimately a Stoic idea, which is a pagan idea. Not all pagan ideas are bad, but this one is. Okay, so um, I know I'm framing this episode a lot. I'll say one more thing. Um, anybody speaking on this topic ought to come to it with a little bit of fear and trepidation. Uh, just last Sunday, we had the following reading. This is just an excerpt from the, the section of Matthew. Therefore, anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever obeys and teaches these commandments will be called greatest in the kingdom of heaven. I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So I really don't want to be teaching the wrong thing in this episode. But here's the thing. This cuts both ways. I think there are others who do teach wrong things, and I want to counter it. I think there's a lot of pharisaical nonsense out there, and I think this episode ought to address it. Here are a few things um, that, uh, well, here are a few examples of times where I think we can break a commandment. And although it sounds like we're going directly against that, we'll quickly learn that we are not. Now, I'm not saying that you can sin. You can never sin. But I do think that you can put those higher order commandments above lower order commandments. Sometimes in this fallen world, they conflict and you can't obey all of the law. So you have to put the highest things in the highest place. Now, there's the classic example of the Nazis at your door. And I have an entire article about why there are times where you can lie and not have just a venial sin or just limited culpability, but be entirely innocent. So if the Nazis come to your door and you're in 1940s Germany and they ask if you are hiding any Jews, and you are, you are entirely entitled to lie. That is the right thing to do because you're between two possibilities. Either you lie or you betray these people. And we know that betrayal is worse than lying. Ergo, you should lie. Now, I quickly learned that we can understand this in the negative, like we just described, but we're going to be reading a, a passage from um, a philosopher called Spinoza. He's a Jewish philosopher. Um, well, he was kicked out of, anyways, that's a complicated story. So, he's an interesting fellow, and he describes it in the inverse, aiming at goods and the hierarchy of goods. And I think that's going to illuminate exactly what we're doing when we're choosing to lie. And you can put some air quotes around that. Another example of times where we could break a commandment is um, like in a superhero uh, movie where the supervillain forces you to do one of two evil things, right? You can kill the one person or you can kill the ten people. Well, in that case, uh, you can kill the one person, right? Both are bad, sure, mm -hmm. but you got to put the, the good of saving 10 over the good of saving one. No problem. Here's another example that, that may be closer to home. It may be something that's more likely than being uh, forced into some terrible situation by a supervillain. Let's say your wife is in the midst of labor and you have to get her to the hospital, like, immediately. Can you break the speed limit? Yeah, of course you can. You, you can you can drive very quickly, break the speed limit, who cares? Get her there. You care that she's safe, that your baby's safe, obviously. Now, is it true that it's wrong to break the speed limit? Well, yeah, I suppose so, right? Paul tells us that 
government has authority from God. It has the right to impose certain types of law for the common good. We, we all accept that. But it's also true that you can violate that law because it's subordinate to the more important law that you ought to take care of your wife and kids. And that's what your intent is aimed at here. Other examples would include uh, war, self-defense, etc. And I do encourage you to either read the article on thegordianot.org about lying or listen to the podcast where I read that to you and give a little bit of commentary. I give the example that uh, if somebody has a truly revolting looking baby and uh, they ask you if it's cute, uh, well, despite its uncanny resemblance to a sentient potato, you can indeed say that it is cute. Is that a lie? Yes, it is. But what are you really doing? Well, you're affirming the parent's love for that revolting looking baby. You're not intending to lie as such. But let's take a few scriptural cases where there are times where you can break a certain law in order to fulfill a higher one. Here's one. Um, the Gospels talk about the, the issue of korban, where people would take belongings and pledge it to the temple. They could then still enjoy a lot of these things, and they wouldn't have to use them to fulfill other obligations, like taking care of their parents. Now, korban is a tradition. It's not technically a law, but there is precedent for giving things to the temple in such ways. Jesus, obviously, not happy with this. Now, let's say they retorted and said, okay, yeah, whatever, sure, it's a tradition of men and stuff, but I gave my word, I gave an oath that I am giving over this property. And let your let yes be yes and your no be no, right, Jesus? Why, are you really telling me that I should now break my oath and instead care for my parents? What do you think Jesus would say? Can you break the, the, um, the oath to care for your parents? He'd go, yeah. Obviously, honor your father and the mother. You've made void this, this whole situation by not obeying the law. Your oath means nothing because you ought to have been using that in the way that God intended in the first place. That's an example of when you could break your oath in order to fulfill a higher commandment. But there's another one which I think really um, is powerful. Let's say you're a, you're a Levite or you're a priest and you see something that looks like a dead body, but you are on your way to the temple. You're on your way to fulfill your duties that God told you you had to do. Should you go over to what is probably a dead body and uh, defile yourself? Well, here's what Leviticus 21 says. And the Lord says to Moses, speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, no one shall make himself unclean for the dead among his people, except for his closest relatives. And it lays out which ones qualify as closest relatives. So Leviticus 21 says, no, God specifically told Moses, go and tell the priests, you can't defile yourself with the dead unless it's a near relative. So that's the law right there. You guys heard it. But you also have heard that parable about the Good Samaritan, no? Where a priest and a Levite walk by on their way to serve at the temple. On their way to do what God has commanded. On their way to fulfill their oath. On their way to worship God and help others to do the same. But they see somebody who looks like he's beaten half to death. Is he a near relative? No, he's a Samaritan. 
So would this qualify as being defiled if the guy turns out to die on the way or to be dead when you go and check on him? Uh, yeah, that would definitely break Ex or Leviticus 21. But what does Jesus think you should do in this situation? Abide by the letter of the law here? No, he thinks that you should show mercy. Why? Because the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. So you should do that. Of course. So that's another great example of when you can violate a lower commandment to fulfill a higher commandment. And you'd be innocent. Not just innocent, but the Samaritan is, uh, is praised in this case because he does this. And if the priest or the Levite had done this instead, he would be praised too. So here's things that we can't say. Things which are entirely off limits. And I want to say them in no uncertain terms. We cannot do evil so that good will result. That is not allowed and that is not what we are saying you ought to do. The Catechism of the Catholic Church specifically uses this language saying you cannot do evil so that good will result. So that's off the table. If it sounded like I'm suggesting that, I am not. And I'll explain later in this episode how doing this, technically speaking, is actually just implying a contradiction in terms. It's not just that you shouldn't do evil so that good will result, but my claim is stronger, that you literally can't, that that is just a contradiction in terms. And we'll spell that out later. Also, I'm not advocating for a utilitarian approach to morality. I reject this, and I will explain why I reject utilitarianism further in the episode. Also, I am not saying that any of the examples I gave or that Jesus himself will give in the next section of scripture that we read imply that these people have a license to sin. They do not. You do not have a license to sin. Nobody has a license to sin. My claim instead is that to break a lower law, to follow a higher one, is not a sin. And Jesus will show us why. All right, so let's go down to Matthew 12 and see how Jesus deals with one of these tricky situations. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick heads of grain and, re and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. He answered, listen to the way he answers this, this charge. Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of the Lord, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that the priests on the Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So his defense was not, no, we didn't. We didn't break the law. Instead, his defense is very interesting, and we'll unpack it a bit. His defense is, well, David did it too. Oh, and the priest did it too. So was this against the law? 
Um, from what I can tell, yes. So Leviticus um, 19, and it's echoed in uh, Le- Leviticus 23, says that you have to leave the edges of the fields um, for the gleaning by the, by the poor, where you can't make a second pass through this. So from what I know, most people believe that it was probably already harvested, or at least some do. Um, and if it was already harvested, that would seem to break this law. Now, if it was not already harvested, so everything was just out, well, then it seems if anything like theft, right? He's just taking, unless it happened to be their field, which I certainly don't think so. Um, but either way, it's either taking somebody else's grain or it's violating the Levitical law that says you can't pass through a second time after it's been harvested and you have to leave what's on the edges of the field for the poor. Another thing which seems to be breaking the law here is that they, um, they, they rubbed the, the grains in their hands as, as I think this one, but other ones say, yes, it did. There we go. Um, that seems to be a preparation of food, which isn't technically allowed. Um, and finally, just the harvesting of grain itself, irrespective of whether or not it's a second pass or not, it seems to be in violation of the Sabbath law. So those are three to four possible ways that this was breaking the law, and that's why the Pharisees brought it up. So his answer is interesting because he prompts them to think back to the story of David, inviting them to understand himself as the Messiah, the new David. Because David is on this mission. He's on this quest. He's bringing about the kingdom of God. And guess what? That's what Jesus wants them to understand of himself. He too is a king on a, on a campaign, on a conquest. And here's an interesting side note I want to point out. David, in the passage that Jesus refers to here, needs more than bread. He also doesn't have a sword. So he asks these people, hey, uh, do you have a sword or a spear? And they say, well, in fact, we do. We have a sword. And guess whose sword it is? It's Goliath's. So it's the enemy's sword that David takes right after he receives the, the showbread, which is only for the priests. Now, here's my hot take on this. Jesus is doing something similar. What is the, the sword that the enemy uses? Well, he wields disobedience. And what does Jesus pick up? What well, seems that he's wielding the enemy's sword, but he's not wielding it in an evil way, but in a good way. He's showing that he can break this commandment, wielding the enemy's sword of what would seem to be disobedience, instead to obey the law of love and ultimately defeat uh, defeat the evil one, defeat death itself. So he says something else here. He says um, that the priests desecrate the, the Sabbath and yet are innocent. I think we could stop the podcast right here and the point is proven. Why? Because Jesus just told us two things. One, that the Sabbath laws are desecrated. And two, that those who are desecrating these laws are are innocent. So put those two things together and we have our conclusion. There are times when breaking commandments can be innocent and not sinful. And the reason why 
is because these people are doing the work of God, just like the disciples are in following Jesus. So, love the Lord your God is a greater law than not working on the Sabbath. So, what are the priests doing? Loving the Lord their God. What are the disciples doing? Loving the Lord their God. What was David doing? Loving the Lord his God. And in each one of those cases, Jesus affirms that they were actually innocent. He gives multiple examples of showing how they were fulfilling a higher law, a law of love, love of God, love of neighbor, and therefore are, are exempt from these. So he says something interesting here that we're going to unpack a lot. He says that the Pharisees would not have condemned these innocent examples if they had understood the following words. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. So, let's see if we can understand those words. First, what is mercy? The definition we've given on this podcast many times, which is kind of a composite definition I've pulled from different sources, is that mercy is the paying the is paying the debt of justice out of love on behalf of another. And what is sacrifice? Well, it's giving something up um, for God or for neighbor. Why is the first preferred? Both are giving something up. Both are paying something. But only mercy implies a disposition of the heart. One of love paired with this action. That's why God prefers mercy to sacrifice. Because he cares about the internal intention of the heart, not just exterior compliance with the law, not just giving things up, not just doing things. He also cares about that movement of love, the intention that we have in our heart. Aquinas says that this intention defines the action. And we'll read the passage um, it's a, on the question of murder um, coming up a little bit later. But he says the intention defines the species of the action. So in mercy, love of the other is the intention of the action. And thus, Romans 13 says, the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and any other commandments are summed up in this one decree. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And elsewhere, we learn that love covers a multitude of sins. The law is a teacher of love. That's what it orients it to. It teaches us to love the highest things the most, and thereby ultimately teaching us to love God himself. So we fulfill the law through God's own love pouring from us to the Father as a result of being joined with the second person of the Trinity come to us through the incarnation and subsequently through the sacramental economy as our ordinary means of grace. So the way that we fulfill the law ultimately is through God's own love coming through us because of the work of salvation done by Jesus Christ. That's what fulfills the law. But we need to flesh that out a little bit more. And by, um, by reading the part that Jesus is quoting, 
because what he quotes is actually a section from Hosea, and it's pretty cool. Normally, it's Isaiah who gets all the credit for messianic passages, but this here, Hosea, is a, um, he's got a, he's got a pretty good one. So, you're going to be reading through that and unpacking it. Here's what it says. It's uh, Hosea 6. Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us, that we may live in his presence. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge him. As surely as the sun rises, he will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. What can I do with you, Ephraim? What can I do with you, Judah? Your love is like the morning mist like the early dew that disappears. Therefore, I cut you in pieces with my prophets. I killed you with the words of my mouth. Then my judgments go forth like the sun. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. As at Adam, they have broken the covenant. They were unfaithful to me there. That's the context of of Jesus's quote. That's the thing that we have to, to understand. So what's going on in this passage? Well, the first part is a recognition of our fallen and injured state and an intent to return to the Lord and a hope in God's healing as a result. And this is a messianic prophecy. Um, we have Christ returning um, we have uh, we we have the the restoration in the three days. We've got a lot of stuff there, and finally we have um, God saying that our love is fleeting, and thus He sent convicting words. After that, we have the lines, "For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God, rather than burnt offerings." So Jesus says. If the Pharisees understood these words, then they would not have condemned the innocent. So let's put these things together. And then we'll figure out why the disciples, David, the priests, and Jesus are all innocent. So in this passage, there are two kinds of knowledge. One is a knowledge of sin. And Paul tells us that that knowledge of sin comes through the law. And also, there's the knowledge of how to return to God, indicating the ceremonial and temple laws that unite the nation of Israel to their creator. So the knowledge of sin and the longing for healing from sin through the power of God prompts us to, quote, let us press on to acknowledge him. And then he will appear and cut off those without love, instead desiring mercy, which is sacrifice united with love. With this loaded in our mind, what do you think Jesus in Matthew 12, after confronting the Pharisees with a quote from this passage, does? Well, let's read it. Going on from that place, which was the fields in which he was accused, he went into their synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus, they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He said to them, if any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, 
will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. So what did the man with the shriveled hand do? Well, he completed Hosea's first step. He recognized his sin and his need for union with God, as evidenced by his appearing at this synagogue, the very place where he would hear God's words proclaimed, that which cuts to the heart, that which divides off those who do not love God. What happens next? Well, just what Hosea's prophecy says, right? God himself appears, the one who will then be restored in three days. As surely as the sun rises, so too will God appear. And there he came. And then, with Jesus before him, he reaches out his hand in obedience and is restored by Christ's act of mercy. So, I really like um, Mark chapter three's account, um, maybe even more than Matthew 12's account that we just read. So here's how Mark describes the same scene. Then Jesus said to the man with the withered hand, stand up among us. And he asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? But they were silent. Jesus looked at them with anger and with sorrow at the hardness of their heart. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and it was restored. Jesus here is angry and sorrowful that these Pharisees didn't get the point. You see, all of the law is about how we can stretch out our hand to Jesus. All of it. All of the law is meant to point to Jesus. And we, in our shriveled and weak state, are meant to reach out to him as he first calls us to do, and by so doing, cooperate with his grace such that we are healed through his mercy. So let's recap the three ways that Christ defends his actions. First, when confronted by the Pharisees in the field, and they say, you've broken these laws, he says, quote, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. So what's he doing? Well, he's appealing to the hierarchy of goods. He's saying the temple is good, and that's why the priests can serve at the temple. Because the temple is extremely good. It's even better than the Sabbath law. And I am greater than the temple. That's why the disciples can serve me. Second answer. If any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. What's Jesus doing? He's reaching out to that man, to that shriveled hand, and pulling him out of his, of his injury, of his dysfunction. That's what he does with us. He reaches out, and we respond with our little shriveled hands, and then he restores us. So if we would have mercy on a sheep, 
wouldn't we have mercy on a person? Wouldn't God have mercy on us? So that's his answer here. Look at how we act towards things which are of less value. A sheep. Okay, how would we then respond to things which are of more value? A person. Again, it's an appeal to the hierarchy of goods. And finally, he answers, which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to destroy it? To do good or to do evil? We're going to break out what evil is a lot more later. But suffice to say, classic definition, is that it's a misordering of the hierarchy of goods. So we understand things as good and evil in relation to one another. Eating a delicious sandwich is good. But if you're eating your delicious sandwich and you're watching a toddler run towards traffic, well, you ought to prefer the life of the toddler to the good of your sandwich. Drop your sandwich and save the toddler. So if you prefer the good of your sandwich, then eating your sandwich becomes an evil act, even though it's good in of itself. So which should you do, to do good or to do the lesser good, evil? Everything that God makes is good to an extent, but it's evil in comparison to a choice of an even greater good. So that's, that's kind of what we're going to be drilling in later. But here's our other one, to save life or to destroy it. And that one, I think, has strong implications for what we were talking about earlier with the Nazis at your door. That's what I would ask people who think that you can't lie to the Nazis, which I'm sorry, I think that's a ridiculous view. I would say in the words of Jesus, hey, is it lawful to save life or to destroy it? I think the answer is clear. Now, as with every episode, we somehow circle back to the fourth way of St. Thomas Aquinas. And in that, we learned that there is a hierarchy of good, the true, and the the perfect, the most actual, uh, that with uttermost being. And we have some things greater than others, better than others, some things more true than others. Ultimately, the good things of this world point to the ultimate good God, the true things of this world to the ultimate truth, who is God. So what is the law doing here? Well, the law is helping us put the highest things in the highest place. It's helping us learn how to love God ultimately. So what does it mean with, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings? Well, it means that all of the things that we have are not just meant to be uh, rotely used um, as an offering or in a sacrifice with no eye towards God. Instead, we ought to unite our actions with love, turning this into mercy, because by so doing, we are acknowledging God as the highest good and how he causes all good things. Now, our example of the uh, the Good Samaritan and the priests and Levites show that somebody acknowledged God in his act of mercy by saving this person's life. And somebody was on his way to a sacrifice. So in each of these cases, um, love is the operative principle. 
I know that's a simple answer, um, but we'll make it less simple very soon. Uh, let's see, let's see. I want to read you one more passage that we'll reflect on because it was also part of the um, last Sunday's readings. If you're listening to this as soon as it came out, like everybody should, of course. We read from the book of Sirach. It has an interesting line I want you to pay attention to. If you choose, you can keep the commandments. They will save you. If you trust in God, you too shall live. He has set before you fire and water, to whichever you choose. Stretch forth your hand. Before man are life and death, good and evil. Whichever he chooses shall be given him. Immense is the wisdom of the Lord. He is mighty in power and all-seeing. The eyes of God are on those who fear him. He understands man's every deed. No one does he command to act unjustly. To none does he give license to sin. Stretch forth your hand. I think Jesus may have had this passage in mind. Listen to how many times we've heard this. Here in the book of Sirach, stretch forth your hand. Again, in the book of Mark, where it's described that we should stretch forth our hand. The book of Matthew, stretch forth your hand. In some translations, when the disciples reach out for wheat, it says they stretched out their hand, or something quite equivalent, to reach out for that wheat. Uh, With David, reached out, stretched forth for the showbread. In each one of these cases, we have a similar line. And I think this gives us this gives us quite the clue. How is the man with the wizzled hand saved? How was he healed? Well, before him stood the Pharisees and Jesus, the representative of mercy and of sacrifice. He chose mercy and he received it. As Sirach says, whichever you choose will be given you. He chose the highest good, and he got it. So nowhere does he command him to act unjustly. The man with the crippled hand knew that stretching out his hand for Christ's mercy could not be unjust. It was not a sin because he was reaching out in faith to acknowledge God. And that's what God himself says he prefers. He prefers mercy. He prefers when we reach out to God over and above burnt offerings. So, there's a common quoted uh, section of Paul that says, um, when, when we're in temptation, there is always a way out. And some have taken this to to believe that there's always a way to fulfill all these sections of the law. That the world does not possibly arrange in such a way that the law, that the commandments of God, will ever be in tension. I think that's false. I think Christ's example of the, the Good Samaritan disproves this. Either he, he breaks the Levitical law or he shows mercy, which is fulfilling a higher law. I think the example that he gives of the priests desecrating the Sabbath and yet remaining innocent, I think that 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 goes against this reading and the other ones which we have gone through so far. So what does it mean that there's always a way out? Well, what we read earlier was that nobody has a license to sin. However, when we're properly arranging the hierarchy of goods, we're not sinning. So when you lie to the Nazis, it's not a sin. If, if it really was, if it was a sin to lie to the Nazis, 
And we can affirm that it's a, a sin to betray the people who are in your care. Then that would be empirical proof that Scripture is wrong when it says that we can, in fact, to quote Sirach, keep the commandments, or when Paul says that there will always be a way out. So I don't think that there is any empirical proof, despite these hard circumstances, to show that Scripture is wrong. And I think that shows that our reading, that there's never a time where we can violate one commandment to fulfill another one, I think that's what we need to look at. So let's... um. Let's shift gears here a little bit and do a wee bit of philosophy. And then we'll get into some of those things we promised at the top of the episode about why we reject utilitarianism and why we believe that it's, in a way, just impossible to do evil so that good will result. But first, let's take a very brief break. Okay, let's get into our philosophy section. Uh, we'll be reading a bit from uh, Spinoza. Um, he is a Jewish philosopher, as we've noted earlier. And um, we do not agree with everything this man says, not even close. But um, he is quite the thinker. And I do think he has something very interesting to tell us. This is from uh, his book titled The Ethics, uh, chapter, chapter 4, I believe. All right. Proposition 65 reads... Under the guidance of reason, we should pursue the greater of two goods and the lesser of two evils. Here's the proof he offers. A good which prevents our enjoyment of a greater good is in reality an evil. For we apply the terms good and bad to things insofar as we compare them one with another. And we gave the example of eating the sandwich and the saving the toddler earlier. Therefore, evil is in reality a lesser good. Hence, under the guidance of reason, we seek or pursue only the greater good and the lesser evil. And he continues, We may, under the guidance of reason, pursue the lesser evil as though it were the greater good. Now, why is that? Just to remind you here. So the lesser evil is just another way of looking at the comparatively higher good when we're choosing between two things. So lesser evil and comparatively higher good are synonymous here because everything God has made is good. Evil does not have a positive ontological status. So he's seeing that Evil comes about comparatively when we choose a lower good. Let me read that section again because it's not quite as clear as the first part I read. We may, under the guidance of reason, pursue the lesser evil as though it were the greater good. And we may shun the lesser good, which would be the cause of the greater evil. For the evil, which is here called the lesser, is really good and the lesser good is really evil. Wherefore, we must seek the former and shun the latter. So privation's theory, the idea that evil doesn't have a positive ontological status, that's pretty much 
run-of-the-mill Catholic theology. I don't think that any of this goes in opposition to it at all. Augustine um, would describe evil slightly different in the way which I sum up as evil is non-being or being ought to be. But there's absolutely no conflict between that type of privation theory and the misordering or misarrangement of the hierarchy of goods uh, description that comes via Aristotle and is picked up here with Spinoza. Aquinas uh, speaks of it in a very Aristotelian way at times, and uh, he also uh, quotes Augustine. He sees these two things as fundamentally compatible, and we do too. So, when we are faced with two evils, like lying or betrayal, what we are actually choosing between are two goods of different levels. The good of one is telling the truth. And the other good we're choosing for is maintaining our allegiance to our friends. Spinoza here would say to pick the greater good, which is convertible into choose the lesser evil. And Spinoza is a Jew, which is one of the reasons I quoted him. Um, because we've been dealing extensively with the Old Testament. Yes, he was kind of kicked out of the synagogue or something for reasons, and good reasons, I may add. But Jewish understanding gets this. The idea that the laws, all 613, are in order of importance is a very common rabbinic tradition. And that seems to be reflected in this man's philosophy. So as promised, why is it impossible to do evil in order to bring about a greater good. Well, here's why. Because choosing evil is by definition misordering the hierarchy of goods. Yet, bringing about good is correctly ordering the hierarchy of goods. Therefore, it is a contradiction to say that one will misarrange the hierarchy of goods in order to correctly arrange the hierarchy of goods. That is just simply impossible. That makes no sense. You can't do evil. You can't screw up the hierarchy in order to unscrew up the hierarchy of goods. That's incoherent. So it's not just that you shouldn't. It's that, in a way, you just plain old cannot, which leads us to utilitarianism. You may say, well, what if I did something that was evil, um, but it had likable effects? I would say likable effects are not the same as having correctly ordered the hierarchy of goods. You're just choosing things which you you subjectively believe are more desirable. And that does not always track goodness. So if you could, let's say, kill a man in order to make everybody in, a multimillionaire, is that okay? Well, no, of course not, because although we would all like to be millionaires, that's a, a, a preference which we would have, that's not the proper way to order goods. You can't put somebody's life subordinate to your preference for a means of living to maximize how much joy you get out of spending your million dollars. That is not what, what is okay. Furthermore, Utilitarianism has some deeper problems, and the one that I see more than anything else is that it treats goods as quantitative, not qualitative. 
What does that mean? The core to the utilitarian idea is that murder could mean that's a 100 on the badness scale, and lying could be a 5 on the badness scale. Therefore, we could we we would have 20 lies would add up to one murder. No, that's not how it works. It is true that you can rank good things, and the flip side is you can then rank the misordering of good things, um, and that's what we would call sin. That's why we can rank sins, because what we're doing is we're actually ranking how screwed up the ranking of goodness is when we sin. Um, but when we have things ranked, that does not imply they become quantitative, and that's a common mistake in like, I don't know, like a freshman statistics class where somebody puts things in rank ordering and then treats the position of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, etc. as if that was a real number that related to the thing. That is not true. I could say, I love my mother more than I love my next door neighbor who I love more than somebody I've never met. So they're in position of one, two, three. But I wouldn't say that, well, um, I don't know. I love uh, one person so many times more because one or two is so many times more than the other. No, those are simply showing the, um, the position in a set. The number doesn't actually relate to anything in that set because those things are qualitative rankings. So, utilitarianism I see as fundamentally flawed because they seek to use, use math to calculate what would be the most optimal scenario. But the operators in their calculation are not quantitative. They are qualitative things. So their calculations for utilitarian analysis are as ridiculous as somebody trying to do math using one, two, three, and four, and red, blue, yellow, green. It's not a mathematical operator. It is true that we could look at a rainbow and see the colors in an order that does not imply that we can plug them into math equations. All right, so that is my big problem with utilitarianism. And that is why we absolutely are rejecting it here. At no point did I say, well, you can break a commandment if you think it's going to have good results. I never said that. I said we ought to choose the qualitatively higher good. And that is reflected in the law. Ergo, if two laws contradict one another, then we have not sinned if we have chosen to obey the higher law because that targets the higher good, and therefore we have maintained the proper ordering in the hierarchy of goods. Okay, but you may ask, isn't what I'm describing still sinning to bring about a good end in some way? Well, the answer is no, and let me read a passage from good old St. Thomas Aquinas, the passage that most people appeal to when they speak of the principle of double effect. So here he says in his respondio about murder, I answer that nothing hinders one act from having two effects, only one of which is intended, while the other is, be is beside the intention. Now, 
and this is very important, now moral acts take their species according to what is intended and not according to what is beside the attention, since this is accidental, as explained above. And it lists some places, and I read them, and they're not that helpful. I think you got already get the point from this passage. <laughs> Accordingly, the act of self-defense may have two effects. One is the saving of one's life. The other is the slaying of the aggressor. Therefore, this act, since one's intention is to save one's own life, is not unlawful, seeing that it is natural to everything to keep itself in being as far as possible. And yet, though proceeding from a good intention, an act may be rendered unlawful if it be out of proportion to the end. Wherefore, if a man in self-defense uses more than necessary violence, it becomes unlawful. Whereas, if he repel force with moderation, his defense will be lawful. Because, according to the jurists, it is lawful to repel force by force, provided one does not exceed the limits of a blameless defense. Nor is it necessary for salvation that a man omit the act of moderate self-defense in order to avoid killing the other man, since one is bound to take more care for one's own life than that of another's. But as it is unlawful to take a man's life except for the public authority acting for the common good, as stated above, Article 3, it is not lawful for a man to intend killing a man in self-defense except for such as have public authority, who, while intending to kill a man in self-defense, refer this to the public good, as is in the case of a soldier fighting against the foe, or in the minister of the judge uh, struggling against with uh, struggling with robbers, although even these sins, if they be moved, uh, these would be sins if they are moved by private animosity. So here, Aquinas tells us this vital principle. Now, moral acts take their species according to what is intended, and not according to what is beside the intention, which is accidental. So what is intended when the disciples pluck wheat and prepare it? Was it to violate the Sabbath? Was it to offend God? No, it was to preserve their lives, which Aquinas says is something which all things ought to do. It was to give them energy to do the will of God while they were following Jesus. What was intended to do was to love the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their mind, with all their soul, with all their strength. The greatest commandment, which fulfills all commandments. What was intended was to acknowledge Jesus as God and as the Lord of the Sabbath. So the moral act takes the species according to the intention. Their intention was not at all aimed to violate the law. Ergo, they did not. And they're not teaching others to do likewise by their actions. So in the case of the Nazis, strictly speaking, if we must satisfy our friends in the ivory tower, we could just tell them that there is no lie. Why? Because there is no intent to deceive as such, only an intent to save life. Lying is to speak a falsehood with the intent to deceive. This last part is absent because the intent is to preserve life, and thus this is the species of the action. So this is kind of another method we can go about to explain what's going on. So let's sum some of these things up before we end. We fulfill the law through God's own love being poured through us 
back to the Father as a result of being joined with the second person of the Trinity, come to us through the Incarnation and subsequently through the sacramental economy as our ordinary means of grace. Paul specifically tells us that love is the fulfillment of the law. And that's how we can understand the seemingly competing things where Paul tells us that he sets aside or abolishes the law in his flesh with all of its rules and regulations. It's uh, Ephesians 3. And Jesus says that not a jot or a tittle of the law will pass away. Well, this is how we understand it. We also learned that God prefers mercy over sacrifice because the intent of the agent defines the species of the act. And mercy entails the love of other and transforms the sacrifice of obedience into an act of law-fulfilling love. So kind of carrying on with this Thomistic theme, when somebody like Rahab the harlot or, say, the uh, Hebrew midwives lied, uh, they didn't let their yes be let, yes and their no be no, um, they remain innocent because their intent determined the action. And it's a necessary part to have culpability to have this type of intent. Now, it's very important to remember that this intent is ordered towards God as our highest good with all lower goods in proper arrangement. Obviously, a malformed and wicked intent sprouting from a malformed conscience is not what we're talking about. Just because people have, quote, good intentions doesn't mean they're justified. Absolutely not. They have to be good intentions in an absolute way, measured against that gradation of goodness caused and topped by God himself. So the intent must be at God, not at any other lesser thing. That's the only way that this works. So we also rejected utilitarianism because it treats goods as quantitative, not qualitative, and it seeks to do mathematical operations on non-numerical operators. Instead, we rank order goods and choose the highest for the highest place. This is fundamentally different than utilitarianism, where they seek to multiply out instances of good and hope that its product is higher in absolute terms than that ranked order good. We also affirmed that no one has a pass to sin, and there are no exceptions to that. That said, there are times that breaking the law of God is not a sin, and Jesus himself affirms this. Why? Because the law shows us the ranking order of goods, and it tells us, do not disregard this good. Okay, and don't disregard that one either. Oh, and here's another good that the law has identified, albeit in the negative. Don't disregard that one. And we are never to disregard the goods which God has created. That's why, in a sense, we can never break the commandment. Not even one, not a jot or a tittle, because that would be defying, that would be rejecting the goodness of God. But when these come into tension, we have an overarching duty to properly arrange it. And that's why the law is hierarchical. That's why the people of God were taught the hierarchical nature of the law through a hierarchical series series of punishments to form their will to love the highest goods the most and ultimately love God himself. 
We also affirm that there is always a way out, as Paul tells us, and that is to choose the highest good that is on offer. So evil is non-being where being ought to be. It has no positive ontological status. So it's true by definition that if options of any type exist, even options presented to you by a supervillain, there will be some goodness in these options, which means that you can have a way out. You never have to sin. You can always choose to put that whatever amount of goodness you can find above that which has less goodness. You never choose evil because evil is choosing to misorder the hierarchy of goods. We also learned that to do evil, to bring about good, is just contradictory because that would imply ordering and misordering the hierarchy of goods at the same time and in the same way. And that just doesn't make sense. Oh, a couple more things. We also learned that the law is fantastic. It is wonderful. It is wise. It is given by God and it ought still be studied and meditated on. The The law is a school of love. It it taught and cultivated a people such that the Messiah finally came and showed us um, and empowered us with the love of God himself to fulfill these things. Um, and finally, I think that we've learned that uh, we ought not be over-scrupulous. Um, the Pharisees focused on a narrow reading of the law, and they taught others... Um, they taught others to, uh, well, to sin. It, and that's quite ironic in that they thought they were abiding by the letter of the law. They thought that they were safer. They thought that they were more holy. They thought that they were living a more rigorous way of life. Um, and likewise, there are those today who think the same of themselves. There are people who are against lying to the proverbial Nazi. There are people who are in favor of an absolute pacifism, which is just non-action in the face of evil. And there are even people who would tell you that when that person brings a repulsive-looking newborn baby to you, uh, you can't lie and affirm that new mother's love and say it is in fact adorable. We reject all of these things. We think that, um, we think that Jesus does too. All right. Well, I hope that you guys enjoyed this episode. This is probably the first episode that I recorded, just plain old wasn't satisfied with, and had to re-record. <laughs> Everything else, you get a one-shot. Um, and uh, I don't know. Uh, I, I, hope, I hope this made sense, guys. I hope you enjoyed it. And I hope this week you can go out and arrange the hierarchy of goods well, um, that you can consult the law as your teacher. Um, the law, not just in the Old Testament, but also in Christ's great Sermon on the Mount. Remember, you have no license to sin, and you never have to. It's not true that there's not going to be conflicts between laws, but it is true that you always have a way out because you can always choose the good. You can always acknowledge God. You can always show mercy. And you can always reach out to God in the knowledge of him, despite how crippled and weak and wizzled you are. If you want some practice immediately in arranging um, the hierarchy of goods, may I invite you to rate this podcast and put in a review. Not only does every single review make my tiny little heart grow two sizes larger, but it also helps other people enjoy this podcast. 
All right. Well, thank you for listening, and I hope you tune in for the next episode. God bless. I always forget things for these episodes, so here's something that I forgot to include in this original episode, and I'm coming back to tell you. When Christ is giving his famous Sermon on the Mount, I think he's proving a bit of our point here. He says, well, if you look at a woman to lust, then you've committed adultery with her already in your heart. To restate that, one could simply say in the words of St. Thomas that the intent of the agent defines the species of the act. So if your intent is to commit adultery, then the species of the sin, well, that's adultery, even if you haven't actually had the opportunity to follow through with it. So I think that's an important piece I wanted to leave you with, that intent is important. And I think we gave the necessary qualifications for when intent uh, does change the, the species of the action, not just because you have a good intent does that make a good action. Instead, intent ought to be ordered in the way that the law itself is ordered so that we put the highest things in the highest place. All right. Wanted to include that last little bit. Hope you enjoyed.